If you have your Bible, it turns me to Jonah chapter 3. We've been working our way through this book of Jonah. This is our fourth out of five weeks. And as we've been working through the book of Jonah, and I've been studying this and thinking about the great storm that arose and caused Jonah to be thrown into the sea, I started to think about another story. Uh, Ernest Hemingway's uh, The Old Man in the Sea. Maybe you've heard of Ernest Hemingway. He was a uh, writer in the early 1900s, widely known for his uh, body of work, not just The Old Man in the Sea, but also The Sun Also Rises, which, according to the New York Times uh, many years ago, changed the nature of American writing. Also penned uh, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls. And most people are aware of, I mean, if I say those titles, I'm sure that they probably resonate with you on some level. You say, yeah, I'm aware of Ernest Hemingway. Maybe you know a little bit about some of his literature or uh, a little bit. Of, maybe you've read some of his works, but, a lot of, but fewer people actually know about sort of Hemingway's uh, personal life, uh, particularly his rejection of the Christian faith and the lifestyle that resulted from that. Hemingway was born to uh, devout Christian parents. Who, uh, who tried to nurture him in the faith, but Hemingway couldn't really, he couldn't really accept, he could not believe in this notion of an absolute truth, that there would be one chief authority who would, who would actually speak in a way that all people must obey. So he couldn't accept this idea of absolute truth. He once said, what is immoral is when you feel bad afterwards. The viewpoint that there are consequences, he would go on to say, is baloney. You can sin, he says, you can sin and get away with it. And Hemingway uh, would test that theory. He's well known for his partying, his excessive uh, drinking, his multiple marriages and divorces, along with several attempts at suicide. I mean, at one point in his, his life, his second wife, Pauline Pfeiffer, who was watching her husband's womanizing ways, she said, I don't mind Ernest falling in love but why does he always have to marry the girl when he does? He would fall in love, divorce his wife, and then get married again. His wife, his life rather, got so out of control that his mother penned him a letter. And you know, when your mom sits down and writes you a letter, you need to listen. When my mom texts me, if I don't respond within five minutes, I get another text saying, what's wrong? Are you not getting my text? So well, just give me a little bit of time here. But if your mom sits down and writes you a letter, you need to listen. Here's what his mom wrote. Unless you come to yourself, speaking to her son, cease your loafing and pleasure-seeking and neglecting your duties to God, there's nothing for you but bankruptcy. You, son, have overdrawn. And she was right. Ten years after Hemingway received this letter from his mom, he would attempt suicide again, only this time he was successful. The man who insisted sin has no consequences, you can sin and get away with it, learned in the most devastating fashion that this was in fact not true. Hemingway's greatest problem, if you survey his life, uh, you look at the trajectory of his life, his greatest problem was that he was never really brought to repentance for any of his wrongdoing. When things got bad for him, he only uh, became more stubborn, decided to, to dig in his heels even further placing all of his eggs in the basket of his own wisdom. He believed, he was, a, again, a prolific writer, he believed that his own wisdom could be trusted even beyond, above what God had said. 
His troubles, most of them self-inflicted, they never brought him to a place of contrition, only deeper stubbornness. Now Jonah, on the other hand, was also a man who was brought to great trials, again, mostly self-inflicted, only we saw last week that, that as Jonah goes through these terrible trials, he actually, unlike Hemingway, is brought to a place of brokenness, utter contrition. He was broken before the Lord, and in his sorrow and remorse, he turned to the Lord. We looked last week at the prayer of Jonah from the belly of the fish, and he turned and he looked to God's temple. We saw that twice in his prayer last week. He looked to a place where the sacrifices of another, the sacrifice of another would cover his sins. And from the belly of the fish, he called out that pivotal phrase at the end of Jonah chapter 2, salvation belongs to the Lord. This, again, is our fourth week, and uh, next week we'll, we'll kind of wrap things up, and it's a bit of a doozy as we look at what happens with Jonah. Um, but what we've seen so far is that this is really a book about God's grace, God's grace for the outsider. Remember, the Ninevites were, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and Assyria represented the most powerful nation-state to that day. And they were bloodthirsty, and they were evil. They were imagining new ways to torture people. And yet God sees them and, and what he has compassion on them. He sends Jonah to them to repent. So we saw God's grace for the outsider. We saw God's grace for the so-called insider. Even Jonah himself as he runs from God. And we saw God's grace to idol worshipers. Jonah's fellow sailors on the boat who end up crying out to this covenant-keeping God. And this morning we're going to see what happens when grace really sinks in. What happens when a person buys into, receives the beauty and power of grace? So uh, let me read. I'll read the entire section, uh, Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Uh, the word of the Lord reads this way. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the, of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that, he, that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So three days and nights in the belly of the fish, and we see Jonah just crying out to God. And then God determines to tell the fish to spit up Jonah onto dry land. And no sooner has Jonah sort of dusted himself off, dried off, removed the debris, 
Then the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Only this time, Jonah actually arose and went. And he goes into this great city. And now remember, when, when the text tells us it's a great city, this is not God's moral valuation, right? This is, this is not a great city morally. In fact, it was morally bankrupt, but it was great from the standpoint it was a city that wielded much influence and power and commerce. And so it was a very significant city. Jonah goes into it with this message, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And to Jonah's shock and, and horror, the people repented. Now, we'll look more in just a moment at their repentance. Uh, but I want to look at first, what was it that drove Jonah to respond favorably to the Lord this time? Why yes this time when no previously? Well, here's what happened. Jonah was so moved by the grace of God's forgiveness toward him that this newfound gratitude for God's forgiveness showed forth in a new obedience. Earlier, Jonah had refused an assignment, as we saw, we've seen over the past few weeks, he refused an assignment, but somewhere down near the depths of the ocean, uh, God gave Jonah an education on his grace. And as Jonah remembers and is, is, is confronted again with his own sinfulness, his own brokenness, and receives God's forgiveness, he then accepts this assignment. And by all accounts, he did so with a sense of reverence. Uh, one, New, one New Testament scholar, Hugh Martin, writes, A true reception of true forgiveness fills the soul in the very instant with reverential submission quickening and calling forth a promise and pledge, yea, a longing desire and loyal endeavor to obey. Here's our first point this morning from the text. The grace of God's forgiveness stirs our hearts to joyfully obey the forgiver. This is what happens to those who receive God's grace and forgiveness. You may recall the very first week, in fact, my opening, uh, as I opened up this series, I asked you the question, I said, have you ever been a recipient of grace? Have you ever done something? And you know you were wrong, but, but instead of getting anger, you received love. And instead of getting sort of vitriol and condemnation, you received kindness and tenderness. And I said, then remember how powerful that is. Grace is powerful, and here the grace of God's forgiveness is what stirs Jonah's heart. Talk about knowing forgiveness. Jonah knew it very well. He knew he was a sinful man. Remember uh, when the sailors are, are they're, they're trying to figure out why has the storm come upon us, and what are we going to do about it? And, and Jonah says, look, I'm the reason. I'm the reason you're going through this. He said, for I know, uh, Jonah, uh, chapter 1 and verse 12, I know that this is because of me. This tempest has come upon you. Jonah was well aware of his rebellion against God. Um, by his own admission, he ran from God. He fled God's presence. But he also knew that he was a sinner who had been forgiven. God's miraculous deliverance from the fish was evidence that the Lord had heard his prayer and granted him forgiveness. And it was this beautiful reality, the reality of God's forgiveness, that moved Jonah to obey God this, this time around. Now, we talk a lot about grace here, because I believe the Bible is a story of God's incredible salvation through the person and work of his son. It's actually a story of divine rescue by grace. 
But you know, when we talk about grace, there are a number of objections that typically serve us. Sometimes they're just questions, and sometimes they're more sort of arguments against. And people say, look, if you, if you tell people that, that God will forgive them for any sin, if they're in Christ, that they're totally forgiven, won't this lead to rebellion? People say, look, if you, if you tell people that, um, that they, there's no way they can earn their salvation, it's all from the Lord, there's nothing they can do, it's all God's grace and mercy, won't that lead to spiritual apathy? People say, if you tell people who are in Christ, who put their faith in Jesus, that they've already been forgiven for every single sin, won't that lead to sort of wild living? And the answer is, no, it never works that way. To the contrary, grace inspires gratitude and worship. Grace moves. Grace transforms. Grace softens the heart. Grace enables us to obey God over the long haul, especially the hard commands like, for example, forgiving one another. I've seen this so many times in situations in families and marriages. It's only as we grasp God's forgiveness can we then forgive others. A man in a church that I served a few years ago was unfaithful to his wife, carrying on an 11-month affair with a co-worker. They were both police officers. And uh, his wife became aware of this and didn't say anything at first. She just started praying, praying for her husband, praying for his brokenness, praying that God would guide her. Now, this man who was in the middle of this, this infidelity, he, he became aware uh, through a variety of ways that his wife actually knew but hadn't said anything to him. And so he's waiting for this call from her. He's waiting for her to call him and just blast him. But he got the call from his wife, showed up on his cell phone. He said, should I take it? I don't know, should I take it? He took the call, and his wife simply said, I know what's going on, but your wife and your God are waiting for you. We want you back. He was so utterly broken by his wife's gracious response. He turned, left this mistress, went back to his wife, sought her forgiveness, was restored. They were in our small group about a year and a half after all this happened. And uh, they both shared their testimony, which is such a powerful thing. And I remember when another lady in the group asked this lady, how did you ever forgive your husband? Nearly a year of going on with another woman, violating, betraying you. How did you? And I remember, I'll never forget her response. She said, when I thought about all that I had been forgiven by God in Christ, how could I then withhold forgiveness from my husband? It is the grace of forgiveness that enables us to forgive. Now, Jesus tells a story that illustrates this beautifully as well. He's having dinner with a Pharisee and a sexual deviant or a, quote, sinful woman, we're told. And when the Pharisee observes the woman literally pouring out her affection on Jesus, she's actually, she's actually weeping over Jesus' feet and drying his feet with her hair. And then she pours out this expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. And the Pharisee, the religious leader, he thinks to himself, how could Jesus let this happen? If he knew what was going on, he would stop this woman. He would not let this woman show him such affection. Aware of the Pharisee's self-righteous indignation, Jesus tells him a story. And in very un-Jesus-like fashion, he actually explains the meaning. Jesus, as you know, he tells a lot of stories. He doesn't often tell what they mean. 
But here he tells what, they, what the story means, and, and he says, he says what, it, what it means is that those who have been forgiven much, that is those who have been redeemed, respond with love toward God and forgiveness toward neighbor. While those who think they're really good and not of need of salvation, they show no signs of true love for God nor forgiveness for neighbor. To the Pharisee, Jesus offers a word of caution, but to the broken woman, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now notice this. He doesn't remind her of the importance of sexual fidelity. He doesn't give her a pep talk on personal purity. He simply says, go in peace. Her newfound forgiveness and imputed status will be all the motivation she needs to live with a new commitment to holiness. What motivated Jonah to go into a city and announce to a bloodthirsty and wicked people, repent? It was the grace of God's forgiveness. Now, where else, what else do we see about God's grace? Well, there's an interesting fact that if you look at the original languages, so the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, New Testament mostly in Greek. If you look at the original languages, there's a, there's a fascinating tidbit that takes place that you see in the languages. The first time that the word of the Lord came to Jonah in chapter 1 and verse 1, and the second time that the word of the Lord came to Jonah in chapter 3, they read almost identically. So they're virtually identical except for one Hebrew consonant. In both of them, God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. But in the first chapter, the first calling, God says, Go and what? Cry out against her. Against her. It's the Hebrew word aleha. And it starts, uh, Hebrew reads right to left. So um, the word begins with the Hebrew consonant ayin. It looks kind of like a Y, uh, an English Y. Um, but the second time that God calls Jonah... He says, go to that great city and cry out to her. It's a different Hebrew construction. It looks like this. Instead of beginning with that Hebrew uh, consonant I, and it begins with what's called an Aleph. And so it's one letter different. But what he's saying is, it's the same root. It's a slight change, but it's significant. What he's saying is, he's calling for a different mindset from Jonah. One is preaching against these evil people, and one is preaching to them as someone who could actually identify with them. Biblical scholar Richard Phillips writes, in both cases, Jonah would go to the same place and do the same thing. But God would have him go with a different attitude, an attitude of grace. Jonah was to earnestly seek the repentance and forgiveness of Nineveh, and for this he needed to know himself as a penitent and forgiven man. So what God says, I want you to go, but I want you to say it differently. I want you to believe it differently. I want you to go and instead of saying, look, you are wicked people and I'm above you and I'm preaching down to you, you need to repent. Instead, let the people know, look at me. I ran from God. I was a prophet. I resigned my office. I abandoned the commandments of God. And yet, there's forgiveness not just for you, but even for someone like me. Here's our second point this morning. The grace of acceptance alters our attitude toward others. The grace of acceptance alters our attitude toward others. From the time we're little, and I guess we could say uh, from the time we're born, we're on a search for 
acceptance, belonging. We have this innate desire as, as image bearers of God, those created in the Imago Dei, we have an innate desire to be, to be loved. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing. But so much of our lives are spent trying to gain the approval of someone. And it really never ends. Um, when we're children, you probably read about, you know, I'm sure you've read about sort of father hunger, the father problem, whatever. When we're children, we want so desperately to be approved, to be accepted by our parents, by our mother and by our father. And it's critical that, that young children know that they're loved when they fail, when they get a bad grade, when they have a bad day, they're still loved the same. We, we hunger for that acceptance. But then as we get older, it's not as though that longing for acceptance it actually disappears. It's just sort of transferred. And then so, so we, we want to be accepted by our peers. We want to be accepted by, by our boss. We want to be accepted by, by our neighbor. Of course, if we're married, we want to be accepted by our spouse. And then you get older and, and, and you grow to, to have a different relationship with your children. And you want to be accepted by, by your children. So there's this desire, this longing for acceptance. And everywhere we look, we see people who are worn out trying to, to prove their worth, trying to show blank, whoever it is, that they're worthy of being loved. That they should be accepted. But with God, we don't have to prove anything. We just trust in what Jesus has done for us, believing in the work of another, believing that God's love and justice met at the cross where God poured out His wrath on His Son while we deserved it. So we believe that, we trust in that, and He accepts us fully and completely regardless of what we've done. For those in Christ, we have been accepted by God despite our failures, despite our repeated offenses, despite our sins. If you're in Christ this morning, when God looks at you, He sees you through the lens of Jesus. And, and, and get this, this is profound, it's crazy, it's unbelievable. Your standing with God is as secure this morning as Christ is. Because for, for God to reject us, He would have to reject the work of His Son that we're trusting in. And remember, when God accepts us through Christ, through no merit of our own, it changes the way that we see other people. We see other people with humility. We recognize our own brokenness. But when we fail to, when we forget that our acceptance before God is because of Jesus' work and not our own, we become puffed up with pride and judgment toward others. Darren Patrick is is a pastor of, a, was a pastor of a megachurch in, in St. Louis and a church planter and author, and he fell morally and uh, was relieved, removed from his church and went through the, the humbling, beautiful process of repentance and restoration. And I, I, I heard years ago, or not that long ago, I guess, I heard Darren Patrick give an illustration. He said, when we're ministering to people, this is the only way that it works. But he said, you know what we tend to do? What we tend to do is this. 
What's missing? The application to our own heart. We start to believe that other people need God's grace, but we're sort of high and lifted up. We fail to remember how desperately we need God's grace, that we're no different than anybody else in the sense that we need God's forgiveness. We need His mercy. We need His tenderness. It's only then when we recognize our own brokenness It's only when we recognize we're just in need of God's love story, God's mercy, God's promises as anyone else that we can actually speak to anyone with effectiveness, with brokenness. You may think of Jonah as this really bad sinner who ran from God, who was forgiven so much by God. But the truth is you've been forgiven as much as Jonah. You and I have sinned as much as Jonah. And we continue to do it all the time by our affections, the things we love more than we love God, by the things we pursue and the ambitions that that can blind us of, of God's kingdom advancing, by our own selfish motives, by our own evil desires. But the beautiful thing, the amazing thing is God is not holding that against us this morning. If you're in Christ, God is not holding that against you. And he never will. Other people may hold against you your sin. Other, may, other people may bring it to you. But God's not holding it against you. God will not hold our sins against us for those who are in Christ. Now, Jonah knew God's grace of acceptance well. You know, when Jonah revolted against God, what God could have said is, you know what, Jonah? Look, I gave you a chance. You blew it. And I'm going to put you on the shelf for a while. He could have said to Jonah, look, I, I, said, I paved the way for you. And what did you do? You absolutely botched it. Don't you realize I have other prophets? I'm going to put Amos on this one. I'm going to put you aside for a while. He could have said those things. He could have even said, I love you, Jonah. You're still my guy. But I can't use you anymore. But God circles back with Jonah, and it's as if he doesn't even remember Jonah's failure. O. Palmer Robertson explains how God's interaction with Jonah encourages us. He writes, God forgets and never holds the thing against you. Think of how wonderful are the implications of that one fact for your life. God simply does not hold grudges against people who humble themselves and ask his forgiveness through Jesus Christ. For those who believe on Christ, put their faith in him. God accepts us and he promises never to hold our sins against us. And it's not because of our goodness. It's because of his mercy, his grace. His grace delivers us and then we receive it. We become announcers of that grace to others. His grace rescues us and then we become purveyors of that grace. God's grace is a bit like a tornado. It it sucks you into the majesty and the holiness and the power of God. And then it has that tornadic effect. It spits you out on mission. So you can go then and tell others about the grace that you have received. That's what happens to us. That's what happened to Jonah. But what happened to Nineveh? Well, when they heard the message, they repented immediately. Jonah, he only made it about a third of the way into the city. He didn't have to tell the other people. The word started to spread. They started to tell other people. The king started to make the announcement. People started to repent. When they heard the message, they started spreading the the news. And Jonah was expecting violence. Jonah was expecting to to suffer cruel torture as a result of this. But instead, 
There's repentance. Several years ago, a lady in our church came to me and said, my brother died, and I'd like you to officiate the funeral. I said, okay, I didn't, did I have a chance to meet your brother? She said, no, you never met my brother. I said, well, tell me a little about your brother. She said he was an atheist professor, science professor, who mocked God and the things of God. The memorial service is at the University of California, Riverside, and the audience will be primarily, if not exclusively, made up of atheists, agnostic, agnostics, and secularists. And she said, I want you to go preach the gospel to them, but they're not going to like it. I said, well, I won't do a funeral without preaching the gospel, so that's, that's not a concern to me. But I said, is there an escape route if things go really badly? Is there a hidden door somewhere in case I've, I've got to get out of there? She said, not that I know of. And so I went and uh, preached the gospel as clearly as I could. And uh, the people shot daggers at me with their eyes. There was a line of people waiting to speak to me afterwards, and none of them had encouraging things to say. Uh, they looked at me as if I was a fool. How could you believe in a God? How could you believe in a creator? You are a fool. You are an anti-intellectual. You are an idiot. How could anybody put their hope in this? No one tried to hurt me, which I was thankful for. I did have one free uh, Taekwondo lesson when I was 18. I thought maybe I would need to use it, but I didn't. But I thought maybe I would be harmed, but I, I wasn't. This is the way Jonah, he goes into Nineveh. He's expecting something very cruel to happen to him. Maybe he would be decapitated. Maybe even worse, he would be slowly tortured in such a way that he would die tremendous and prolonged pain. These were tactics that the Assyrians would employ. But instead, a whole city cries out to God in repentance. And demonstrating all the necessary signs of repentance. What are the signs of repentance? Well, look at the last part of verse 5 and in, in, in verse 6. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This is the essential ingredient and starting point for repentance. Grief over sin. False repentance, or what the apostle Paul would call uh, worldly sorrow, is really, really sorrowful over the consequences. I can't believe I've got to go through this. But, but godly sorrow, biblical repentance grieves over sin itself. And this is what the, the Ninevites do. So they put on sackcloth. They sat in ashes. These are things you did when you were in mourning. Sackcloth was a very rough material that you wore for a funeral. A person sat in ashes because they were grieving. What the king is saying, weep. He says, weep. He says, don't eat anything. Don't drink anything. Just be on your knees in brokenness before God. Let your attention be on contrition. Repentance is a revulsion of the soul toward my own sin, rebellion, and self-love. It's kind of like you would do if you went out for breakfast and you saw a big long hair in your scrambled eggs. You'd say, oh, I'm repulsed by that. That's disgusting. If you went out for dinner and you, you went to cut your steak and you saw a worm in it. Oh, that, that's just, that's, that's, uh, there would be an immediate sense of disgust. It's kind of like you feel as adults when you come across a middle school photo of yourself, right? My dad sent me some pictures from years ago. I was scrolling through and I found this one of myself. 
And I saw that and I was like, oh, that's horrible. Like it was, plus we got our pictures taken in, in August, so it was like 100 degrees. But I had to have that vest on at all times. I could not do anything without, without that vest. And you know, there, there's some things that you respond to, and you're just like, oh, that's awful. And this is the way it is when we're really broken. Please take that picture down. Uh, this is the way it is when, when we're really disgusted by, we're broken by our own sin. And so I ask you, when's the last time you were disgusted by your own sin? Not, not, not the sin of the evil, bad world. Not the sin of your neighbor. Not the sin of your children. But the sin inside your own heart. So much so that you abandon all pride. And you fest up with true sorrow. When's the last time you were disgusted, repulsed by your own sin? But it led you to rest in God's unearned, unlimited grace of forgiveness. From the greatest to the least, we're told the Ninevites repented. Another evidence of genuine repentance is turning from sin. So there's, a, there, there's, there's grief over sin, but it leads to turning from sin. Uh, we, see in, we read in chapter 3, verse 8, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Finally, repentance is, returning, is turning from sin and turning toward God in humble faith. Now you say, well, no, we have to ask, well, what is it that led the, the Ninevites to repent? I made the point that with Jonah, it was the grace of God's forgiveness. We might read this and think that the reason that, jo- that the Ninevites repented is because they were afraid. Seems as though their repentance was caused by fear, the message of judgment. Forty days and the city will be restored. But that's not really the case. Look at the first part of verse 5 again. This is critical. Chapter 3, verse 5. We read this, and the people of Nineveh believed God. The Ninevites believed God. What did they believe about God? Verse 9, that he was a God who might have mercy on them. That he was a God of such character. They thought maybe this God might just have mercy on us. This is so important because so often we tend to think that it's our repentance that gives way to faith that we become broken over our sin and then we turn in faith. But that's actually a theological misunderstanding. It confuses guilt with conversion. People can feel guilty about a lot of things, but they don't necessarily turn to God. If repentance is the three things I've described, a sorrowful mourning over sin, turning from sin, turning to God, those things cannot happen unless a person realizes something about who God is and what He's done. Unless they become captivated by God's love, His power, His holiness, His mercy, and His kindness. Here's our final point this morning. The grace of repentance is the fruit of believing. Not the other way around. The grace of repentance is the fruit of believing, not the other way around. Faith produces repentance. Believing in who God is and all that He's done for us in Christ brings about repentance. The Ninevites had just a mustard seed of faith. It wasn't a lot of faith. It wasn't a strong faith. And it certainly wasn't a well-informed faith. But it was faith nonetheless. Through this message of Jonah, and we only have part, we don't have all that Jonah said. We We only have a sliver of it. Through this message of Jonah, a 
the message that they heard, they were persuaded that this God of whom Jonah spoke was a God of mercy and kindness. They believed that even though they weren't God's people, they were strangers to the covenant of God. They were aliens to the promises of God. They still believed that this God was a God of love as well as a God of holiness, that he was a God of mercy as well as a God of justice, that he might very well receive them if they trusted in him. And it was based on that belief that they would turn from their sin and to God. Their repentance was a consequence of faith. Now you say, why, why does that matter at all? Well, sometimes I think we believe that if we tell people how bad they are, then they'll be broken over their sin and turn to God. And certainly the law, all the commands in Scripture, they do work to accuse. They, work to, they help, to see a, help us to see our sinfulness. That's the primary purpose of the law, to show us our need for a Savior. But just showing people how bad they are, even if in humility we, we reveal to them how bad we are, it won't change them. They have to have a vision of who God is. They have to see God's mercy and His kindness. And doesn't this inform our evangelism? Rather than debating with unbelievers over political or ethical or on moral platforms, why not introduce them to this God of amazing grace? Well, why not help them to see that, yes, He is without a doubt holy, and there's no darkness in Him, but he is a God who so loved the world. He's a God who so loved the world that he gave his only son. He's a God overflowing with love and compassion. He's a God who's full of mercy, eager to restore them if they turn and believe on him. Now, there's nothing wrong with inviting people to turn from their sin. But unless they're presented with a God who would receive them, a God, again, who in fact loves them, why would we expect anyone to turn to him? The Ninevites turned to God, and verse 10 says that when the Lord saw how they repented, he relented of what he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, we don't have time to get into that this week. I'm going to talk more about that next week. What does it mean to say that God relented or changed his mind? But as we talk about this vision of God, may we have the same vision of God this morning. Of a God, yes, who is high and lifted up. A God who is holy and awesome. But a God who is abounding in love and covenant faithfulness and mercy and goodness and kindness. May God help us to see himself in that way. Let's pray.